We're beginning in verse 9, but I want to uh, re- refresh your memory of where we were at last week. At the end of uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, 5, verse 8, we saw this passage. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then verse 9, and we'll read through verse 11 and get going. Uh, Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Anybody excited? Three powerful, powerful verses. My son especially, he has no hesitations letting me know when he doesn't like a particular kind of food. In fact, he's learned to literally, when he says no, shake his head, almost like dismembering his head from his body. He just shakes it so rapidly. But I know this when I throw him in the air. The brother loves it. When I grab my son Dawson, and he knows when we're getting ready because I like start to squat, you know. I start to squat, and I just I chuck him in the air, and his mouth goes open. His hair flies in the air, and it, it, he just wants all that he can get of it. So he's laughing. We're just enjoying. We're just throwing each other in the air. He never has cried. Well, Dawson, if he didn't trust that I was going to catch him, there would be a problem, and he would make it known. But clearly he does. Daddy hasn't dropped me yet. I have no reason to be scared or fearful. I trust dad. Now, there's another option for him. He could trust the fact that I haven't dropped him. He could trust the fact that um, him and I have fun together. He could trust the fact that, you know, that I'm called his daddy. But he trusts me as his dad. When the scripture says, resist him, firm in your faith, strong in your faith, unmovable in your faith. The implication is not having faith in faith itself. And I feel like as believers in this room, sometimes we struggle with that. We have faith in just the idea of faith. Why have faith? But it's not really in the one who's faithful. It's not really in God, the person. It's more in the concept of faith. This kind of firm faith that will resist the devil is the kind of faith that is in an unfailing, merciful, loving, gracious God. And there's a clear difference. Daddy will never drop me. Daddy will never fail me. I enjoy being with Daddy. When you have that kind of faith, it all comes back to the one who's faithful. Are you with me, church? That is a beautiful picture of the opportunity that we have through faith. Keep going here. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What he does here is he encourages by association. So you're suffering, and for those of you that are just joining us, we've been studying 1 Peter verse by verse for a long time. This book is written to a church who is suffering. There's potential for death. And so what he says here is, you need to remember that there are brothers all throughout the world that are undergoing the same kind of thing that you are. He presents another lure. It's not just the elevation of self. It's loneliness. If you feel singled out, if you feel like you're the only one that has the kind of problems possible, 
if you feel like that no one has it as bad as you, if you feel like that it can't get worse in the entire world because of the experiences that you're going through, you isolate, become lonely, and single yourself out. And in doing so, present another lure for Satan. The combination of the elevation of self and loneliness and being singled out is a powerful, powerful combination. And there's some of you that are here tonight that would say that. I'm completely lonely. I feel singled out. I feel like no one loves me. I feel like no one encourages me. I feel, and it's just all of this self-consumed loneliness. And ultimately, friends, that's what loneliness is. It's self-consumed. So what does Peter say? You're not alone. Let, let me explain how this matches our culture. Christianity, Christians, will be and always have been and will continue to be opposed across every cultural, racial, economic, social lines. Christians everywhere will always be opposed. I know for us it seems easy, right? I I know it's hot in here, okay? But there's churches in Malaysia. That's a country, right? Malaysia, right? And they're meeting in in a room with a capacity of 45 with 300 in open air, and it's 180 out, right? So we're very blessed to be here. And so I know sometimes it's like, well, well, how could we be suffering or they're suffering way? Suffering in Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is across the board for one reason. Condemnation. Now, the scripture says that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen. The beautiful peace of being a son of God, daughter of the king. But any time that light is a part or with, in the association of, or in the same department of darkness, there is a natural condemnation that the darkness feels. Whether it's intended, whether it's purposeful and intentional. In other words, many of you used to live a life that was uh, very much dabbling in the world. So a lot of the physical, tangible things that you struggled with, alcohol, sex, lust, whatever it is, You changed. Christ saved you. He made you a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Scripture says this old life is now, uh, Scripture says in Romans, crucified on the cross. You're living a new way. You've experienced this. You walk in to this same group of friends, and they're like, so, like, let's roll. Like, let's go time. Here you go. And and you're like, I'm not, I I don't do that. Are you judging me? You know, like, what, are you trying to, what, what are you saying here? You're not participating... No, I'm, I, I'm done with that light. There's an instantaneous sense, whether it's intended or not, of condemnation. Now, I would hope that you would agree with me that we should never intentionally condemn anyone. But sometimes it happens naturally, and that is why Christianity will always be opposed. And that's why Peter can write here that, that there are brothers all throughout the world that are undergoing suffering. Why? Because to be a part of Christ is to undergo suffering and to live for something different than the culture is. Now, there's many people who claim Christianity and cause condemnation on on those that they're around, and it's not in the name of Jesus. Though they claim Christianity, their interest is in elevating themselves above this group of people. 
that is not true Christianity. But at times, when you're the most loving, the most encouraging, the most gracious, the most merciful, the most Christ-like on this earth that you could be, there will still be times when those living in the darkness will look to us and say, you're treating me like I'm way less than you. This is the nature of light and darkness. We can't shy from that. We can't be ashamed of that. We just have to keep living in love. So Peter says, resist. Stand firm in your faith and be encouraged by association. Look at verse 10. Probably one of my favorite verses in all of 1 Peter. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Look at that first piece there. And after you have suffered a little while. I talk about uh, football all the time. There's this thing happening right now. It's called two-a-days, okay? Have you guys experienced two-a-days? Okay, two-a-no-yahtzee is what it is. It's wretched. It's, it's very, picture going through two-a-days in today's heat, right? I mean, on the front of uh, the, the St. Louis newspaper, which is called the St. Uh, Louis newspaper thing, um, they're on the cover there is a football player. Cause, so it's a big story, right? All these football players are going through two-a-days, and, um, and it's very, very hot. The only way you get through two-a-days, and there's guys chucking. I mean, it's a bad deal. The only way you get through two-a-days is mentally you're like, four more days, three more days, two more days, right? And in, in a week, we get to play a game. The only way you get through is you understand how little the time frame is. This is not the pinnacle of our life. It feels like it is sometimes, doesn't it? You're holding your kid, and it's just this new baby, and you're just you're obsessed with this little beautiful creation. And you think to yourself, and you even say sometimes, like, it can't get any better than this. It just can't. You connect with someone relationally in this powerful way. And you think in your mind, it can't get any better. Can I tell you something? This short amount of time that we're here is not even close to the pinnacle for those that are in Christ. And this time in the flesh is so short, so temporary, that what Peter's saying is, listen, it, you're only going to suffer for a while. It's just a little while. For some, it'll be a really, really little while. For others, a little bit longer. But either way, a short time. Uh, those of you that are close to me, you know this. I've been dealing with this sense in my life more and more and more every day. And often, for us, it's like brought on by a great song or a touching movie, like The Notebook or something, where you, like you all of a sudden realize, I haven't even seen The Notebook. I just know lots of people cried at it. Did you cry at it? None of you could. And these movies, they kind of like escalate the urgency or the shortness of life, right? Or a, the right song comes on and, and you're just... Every time that I'm waking up now, I'm waking up with this sense of like a little while. When you can live in that reality, it changes the way you read the scripture, man. It changes the way that you approach loving others. 
it definitely changes the way you approach your family and your children and your work schedule. Little while. Could I just pause for a moment and ask you this? Do you feel like right now you're just in such a grind in life that there's no concept that tomorrow it could be all over? You're just such in the grind in the daily constraints of your rhythm and your schedule that to even think that it's a little while is so far beyond comprehension. Let me encourage you with this. We're treating it like this is the pinnacle. But friends, this here and now is the opportunity. It's the opportunity for us to be ambassadors for Christ, to love the unlovable, to truly show the gospel to raise our family in the way of the Lord, to reveal humility. This is our opportunity. It's not the pinnacle. And for those of you that aren't in Christ or those in the world that aren't in Christ, it will get much worse. And this isn't hellfire and brimstone. This is just the reality. The suffering of this little time doesn't even compare, you see. It works both ways. But either way, it's a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, what's the phrase? The God of what? The God of what? Come on. The God of all grace. The first time I read this, th- this little phrase, anyone, come on, you've been here enough. Anyone know the first question in my mind? Anyone? Shout it out. Okay, what does it say about God's character? Brilliant, my brother. Yes. And my other question was, is this any other place in the scripture? Answer? No. The God of all grace. This is the only time this phrase ever shows up. The God of all comfort, like we just sang about, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. But the only time in the scripture where we see the God of all grace. Now, speaking of God's character, Peter has made many statements about God. And if you've been here a while, you know this. Our whole thing, our whole mantra, our whole mission is to elevate God to his rightful spot, be enamored by his character, and respond with our life. So, if we may, can we take a moment just to be enamored with the character of God from 1 Peter? He said, the God of all grace here, let's look at these 12 other things quickly. First, uh, Peter wrote in chapter 1, verse 2, that God has foreknowledge. God is all-knowing. He has foreknowledge. He is working out his will by his power, for his glory. Next verse. Chapter 1, verse 5, Peter wrote that God has power. Unfortunately, that word in our context, it just we use it so much that we, don't, we can't even grasp it. Picture a God who holds the universe in his mighty hand. That's power, not being able to bench press 280, Trevor, one time. Chapter 1, verse 21, God raised Christ from the dead. He has power over the, over the tomb, over death. Next passage, chapter 1, verse 23. God's word is imperishable. It's the imperishable seed. It cannot fail. It doesn't go anywhere. It is imperishable. Next, chapter 2, verse 10. God is merciful to his children. Those that he calls his sons and daughters, he is merciful to. This is the power of the character of God. 2, verse 17, God is to be feared. Next, chapter 3, verse 22, God, or Christ sits at the right hand of God. God had the power to raise his son from the dead and sat his son Jesus at his right hand. Next, uh, chapter 4, verse 6 says, God is 
is spirit. He is mobile. He's everywhere simultaneously. Next, chapter 4, verse 10, God gives varied grace. This was in the teaching about how he gives gifts to all, and he does it in a varying way. Next, chapter 4, verse 11, God supplies strength for the serving. For those that are serving and interested in loving, God gives all strength. Chapter 4, verse 19, God is a one of my favorite phrases of this entire book, a faithful creator. Again, the only time in scripture we see that phrase. And last, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God, God, God. He's powerful. He's merciful. He has power over, the, over, over death. That's the picture that Peter has painted about God. Now, if that doesn't cause you to sit back and for a moment as you look at all of those things and just say for a second, what a God. Then we're misunderstanding the intention of the scripture. This scripture, this word, this imperishable word is given to us so you and I can be gripped by the power of God's character and then respond with life. So what does it mean, the God of all grace? What does that phrase entail? What's the depth? The uh, Greek word for grace is a charis, and it's a really, really hard word to say. And it literally means this, that you're getting something that you're undeserving of. That's what grace is. You receive what you're undeserving of. And the scripture says here, That God is the God of all grace. So everything that stems from him, which is all in his sovereign plan, in other words, everything happening in anywhere in our culture and universe is under his sovereign hand. All of it is grace and undeserved. The God of all grace is all-encompassing. We're undeserving of everything, and yet in his discernment, in his sovereign plan, he gives graciously But what is this in the context of? What is Peter's whole book about? Suffering. Suffering is grace. And this is such of the summarizing statement of 1 Peter. You suffer, it's grace. Undeserved, unmerited grace. Well, what do you mean? How can suffering be grace? How can the trials or suffering for the name of Christ or being ridiculed because of my association with Jesus, how is that grace? What what does Scripture say? Because you bear the name of Christ, rejoice, right? Powerful, the God of all grace. Look at this. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ and will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's talk through these four words. These four words are described in both now and to come. So the first thing he does is he restores. You were born a broken, in need of repair individual. If left to your own devices and outside of Christ, you will remain broken and in need of repair. But through Christ, you can be restored. Here, temporarily, as much as we can on this earth and in eternal glory completely 
unbroken, repaired, restored. The God of all grace who's called you into eternal glory restores, repairs. What a beautiful blessing, friends, of the God of all grace. That when life feels like it's slipping away and you feel so broken inside, I have nowhere to turn. The promise of the scripture is that the God of all grace repairs. That is his nature. What else does he do? He confirms. In other words, when you were born into this world, you like came in on shifting sand, unable to stand on your own, in need of some stabilization. And now, through Christ, he confirms, stabilizes, and eventually, in eternity, in heaven, through Christ, he completely nurtures, stabilizes, strengthens. You naturally came into this world weak. I know it doesn't seem like that, and I know culture doesn't portray it that way. But you're very, very weak. But all of a sudden, in Christ, though he makes our weaknesses strong through him, we are all of a sudden, through Christ, given this, this strength, this confidence through his spirit to be able to confidently, unashamedly proclaim the word of God, live like Christ, its strength here and ultimate strength for an eternity. And lastly, establishes. Now, um, how many of you guys grew up in a house where there was like this stone outside of your, your house that said your family name and established? How many of you guys? Okay. Well, um, when we got married, it was like one of my favorite gifts. Things remembered? You guys know this store? Isn't it awesome? It's like you bring anything and we'll engrave it. Like we'll engrave your skin. You bring your skin in, we'll engrave it. Some think it's a tattoo. Nope. Permanent engravement, right? Things remembered is this awesome store. So we got this, this, uh, this red stone-like thinking thing, and we took it to Things Remembered. We didn't buy it at Things Remembered, but I just took it in there. I'm like, hey, can you engrave this thing here? Well, normally we only engrave the things we sell. I'm like, but look at this stone. Isn't it, isn't it gorgeous? Isn't it awesome? And on this little stone, what do you put? You put established, 2000 for us, too. Right, Heidi? Was that when we got married? Okay, yes. So Sikama family established, 2002, and we set it out in front. Now, God has what? Foreknowledge, right? God is good and powerful. God is merciful and gracious. And when he establishes his children, the premise is this, is that your name, your name, friends, is written in the, what scripture calls the Lamb's book of life. You are his child, that can never be taken away from you. And it is one of the greatest means of God's grace. So for a moment, could you just understand with me being established? Now look at this, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's summarizing all this. The God of all grace resists the devil. And then he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This kind of sounds like, like the last statement right? Letters over, everything's great. No, no, no. We've already seen this same phrase in 1 Peter 4.11. And if you remember, what I said about the phrase was this. Peter got caught up in what he was writing, and he just had to write worship, right? He just had to let out all of a sudden what he was feeling inside of him. And this is one of those same moments, through inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's writing about the God of all grace who will restore and repair and confirm and establish. And then he just gets, he gets caught up 
in the power of God's character. And he says to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever told a story like 30 times? And amidst it, you just got caught up in the power of it, right? Uh, some of you guys heard about uh, what happened on Monday. Um, me and Brandon and Chris and Jared were golfing. And um, I had a three wood, and Brandon was back here. And uh, I took this, this three wood, and as I was swinging my backswing, Brandon decided to make a, um, we call it in my household, a patoot noise, okay? So it's when one flatulates, okay? So he makes a flatulation noise, I'm trying to be proper, in my backswing. Well, for those of you guys that know anything about golf etiquette, what do you know? Right? Like that, that's, that's naughty. That's, that's a major no-no. If you did that in Tiger Woods, right? You, you, anyway, so all these Tiger Woods references. So I miss the ball completely, right? And I'm, I'm kind of frustrated, but we've been having a fun time. So Brandon's standing about 10 feet back there. And I take my club, and I just, I just swing. And I'm, I'm not meaning to hit him at all. I'm just kind of meaning to kind of, you know, like, ha that was funny. But I, I let go of the club. And if you've seen Brandon, what happened? Let me try to enact where Brandon's at. Uh, Brandon's standing here, and my three-wood um, finds its way, and the head of the club hits him in the head over the left eye. Now, this was the mayor's charity event, Okay. Uh, the mayor gave uh, a substantial amount of money to We Love St. Charles. So there's several carts around here, and we're representing We Love St. Charles, okay? So the director of We Love St. Charles has just released his club. The club has hit the worship guy in the head, and now Brandon has fallen down and is laying on the ground bleeding. Best part of the story, though, was Brandon completely played me. I come over there. He's bleeding from the head already, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, like, I'm nurturing him. He's like, what? What, what happened, man? What, what's going on? I, like, reached down like a mom, and I've got my hand in his bloody head, like, trying to make him feel better, you know? Like, it's okay, it's okay. And then all of a sudden, he opens his eyes, like, gotcha. It was just, like, this amazing, and for those of you that have seen him, he's got this very big, swollen eye. But sometimes when you tell stories, it's like the more you tell it, the more you just get, the more you get riled up, Right? Uh, many of you guys have heard my story about my experience with a God on a frozen lake on New Year's. This powerful moment where about 10 o'clock at night, God had said, Mark, I want you to go out on a Lake Geneva, on this frozen lake. And so I went out and, and walked on this frozen lake, literally to the middle, full moon, and just had this amazing encounter with God. And every time that I tell people that story, it never fails. In my heart, I just get this this profound sense of who God is every single time. Have you ever had that? Where you're telling people some of your experience or maybe it's your testimony and you just get, you get so caught up that you'll just like, God is so good or praise be to God or you just say something because you get, you just like get enamored with God's power and might. This is that moment. Peter has just written this letter. He says the God of all grace who establishes and he can't not say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I wish we got wrapped up more like that. Amen. I wish we got caught up in the power of God more that when we spoke of him, it caused us to tremble. Anyone with me? We don't tremble enough. We don't tremble enough. We don't awe enough.
We speak of God like he's some homie to be achieved and not as God of the universe. So, he's not done. He's going to close this up, and we'll talk through this briefly. How do you all close your uh, emails or your letters? I know you don't write any letters anymore, but do you guys have like a, a, a signature, right? Some of you guys are so crafty, you have signatures on your texts, right? Like the first time I, I was like, oh, that's cool. They, they write their name on there, right? That's nice. They may, maybe just did it for me. And then you keep getting this, the text, and I, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I think it's cool. But do, do you guys have like a special thing? At the end of a lot of my emails, I write, anyone? Okay. Apparently you don't read to the end, right? Forget you guys, right? Well, at the end of my emails, I often write much love. Like, do you guys have something like that in your emails or letters or texts? All right, so anyway, to those who do understand this, um, Peter and ancient letters and writings, they had a certain signature, and we'll we'll see the flow here in verse 12. By Silvanus, now this is interesting, a, a name I wouldn't necessarily name your son, but by Silvanus is actually Silas. Now, uh, if you have a little bit of scriptural understanding, you may uh, know that uh, Silas was one of Paul's big, big uh, companions. He's mentioned 12 times in Acts. Okay, so he's mentioned here by Peter, uh, by, by Silvanus, and oftentimes in the closing of a letter in ancient Jewish times, they would give essentially props to some folks who have helped. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, uh, there's a lot of questions like, well, what was Silvanus' role here in First Peter? Not really critical for us to understand, but I really believe he was the messenger, okay? I believe there's indication both in Acts and here in First Peter that it was Peter that authored the entire letter. And so I think Silas here works as a messenger, but this is funny what Peter says next. Look at this. I have written briefly to you. I think this is kind of a knock on Paul, honestly. He's like, you guys remember that letter to Corinth? Like, this is like a fourth that, right? So I've written pretty briefly to you. Celebrate this, okay? I know my words were poignant, but they were, they were Paul, he's, that dude is long-winded. Just sell it. I've written briefly to you, right? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. A final affirmation here. Stand firm in it. Now an interesting line, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This, this is just a, somewhat of a strange line here, right? Uh, she who is at Babylon, uh, this, it's like, okay, what, what's happening here? Well, let me explain. Babylon in the Old Testament is this location, real location, that carries the connotation in the Old Testament as a place of great sin. Now, Babylon, at the time that Peter writes, isn't a large established place. It's a small location, a small place. And oftentimes, the New Testament writers would use Babylon to talk about, anyone? Rome. Now, it's assumed here that Peter is writing at least around Rome, if not in Rome itself. So when he says, she who is at Babylon, he's referring to Rome, and more specifically, the church in Rome. She, referring to the bride of Christ, as the New Testament refers to the church, and the Greek word for church is in the female context. She, who is at Babylon, the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, confirming what Peter already wrote in the first chapter, the elect exiles of the dispersion, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is John Mark, another uh, messenger uh, of Christ, another uh, apostle, uh, excuse me, rather, just another um, guy who's been around the ministry. So he's kind of summing up all the people that he wants to give props to, and then verse 14 gets interesting. Greet one another with the kiss of love. So we're going to implement this tonight, right now. Um, love everyone to stand and 
turn around and figure it out, right? No. Um, the kiss of love, and, and I'm sure many of you guys are aware, culturally, the kiss was like our, our like bro shake, right? You, you know the bro shake, right? It's the one hand wrap around. You guys know what I'm saying? It's kind of the, do you guys not do that? You do that, don't you, bro? It's a one hand wrap around. So, so the kiss in culturally was just accepted. So when he says, you know, send everyone, or in this sense, greet one another with a kiss of love, it's, it's, a, it's affection. It's greet everyone with this kind of brotherly affection. So it's not something that probably should sustain in our American culture, though in other cultures, it's definitely a peace. Now, this last phrase, look at this. Peace to all of you who are what? In Christ. He ends with three powerful words. Peace, your suffering, it's chaos, peace. Understand that God is sovereign, that he's good, and that in him you can have peace. And then the last two words of this entire letter is what? In Christ. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this phrase. The phrase is in him, in him, in him. All throughout the Psalms, take refuge in him. He is your fortress in him. All these in him, in him. Jesus comes on the scene and the phrase shifts. Listen to this from John chapter 11. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Lazarus is going down. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would have not died. Verse 22 of John 11. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Listen. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Lazarus has died. Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, you're right. The resurrection of the last day. But look at what Jesus says. Look. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes what? In me. All throughout the scriptures, in him, in him, in him. All the way leading to Christ. And then all of a sudden in the gospels, the language shifts in me, in me, in me. Anyone who believes in me. And then the writers who wrote post the Gospels, like Peter, what do they say? In Christ. The power of being joined in Christ, having union with Christ, being in Christ, a son of God. Only there is life. And here's what Jesus finishes with. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he says? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The question for each of us tonight, as Peter ends in Christ, 
I've written this letter to a bunch of people who are in Christ. They believe that they are sons. They believe that they are daughters. They believe that they are abiding in Jesus, living for Christ, for the glory of Christ. The question is, do you believe this? And the power of being in Christ, my friends, is Peter's whole summary. If you are in Christ, then you understand that it's just a little while. That the time's coming when he will repair and strengthen and establish. But if you are not in Christ, there is no hope. This has been a letter of hope for those in Christ. Because for those in Christ, there is life. And so I want to encourage you tonight. If you are in Christ, you have reason tonight to celebrate, to have tremendous hope. There is eternal repair, eternal confirmation, eternal establishment coming for you. And for those who are not in Christ, don't have relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're brand new to the church. You've never heard the power of the fact that Christ was sent by God, Christ his son, lived a perfect life. The blood shed on the cross as he sacrificed is enough, completely sufficient to cover all of your sins. And the promise of the scripture is not you clean up and come to God, it's you come to God, trust faith in him, and he makes you a new creation. If you're there tonight, unknowing, not in Christ, but beginning to believe that life is only in him. I just want to encourage you to cry out to him. You're like, well, what does that mean? It just means there even in your seat tonight. Like, God, I, I don't know even what to say, but would you make yourself real to me because I desire to know you. But for those of us that are in Christ, there's this confirmation, this celebration, this meal that is to be shared for all believers as a recognition that we are in Christ. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. For all those in me, all those believing in me, my life, my death will be your every source of life. So take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. And any time that you gather, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. The cup, this blood represents new life. Represents the fact that you can have restored, repaired relationship with God through me. And he passes the meal. And he dies. And on the third day, he resurrects, claiming ultimate victory for you and I with him for an eternity. Tonight, friends, we respond. For those in Christ, you get the opportunity, repenting, turning from your sin, asking God to forgive you as you turn towards the cross of Christ, which is what repentance is, turning away and turning towards you have the opportunity to celebrate 
with this meal tonight. For believers, we take uh, the communion by intention, pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And I would ask you and implore you, do you believe this? And if so, respond. And for those in here that aren't in Christ, you have a great opportunity as well. To, as you're sitting in your seat, begin to ask God to open your eyes to his powerful reality. Let's pray together. God, I, I have not words to describe your greatness. But God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to be in you, to abide in you, to have life in you. So God, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters strength to turn from the lusts of the world, the passions of culture. I pray that you will equip and and empower us with great faith and trust in you and not in faith in and of itself, believing that you are the source of life, that you are the resurrection and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through you. God, would you give us that perspective tonight that we may trust and believe that you are God. So God, hear our cries of response. Respond when you're ready, church.
the God of all grace has made a way. And I believe tonight that that's the reason for the church to celebrate. So could you guys just give a, a hand clap to the one who's worthy? Come on. Yeah. If tonight was your first time here, welcome. It's amazing to have you here. There's little cards in your pew. If you wouldn't mind taking a second to fill that out, uh, just so we can be in touch with you. Also, if you're interested, uh, there's a three main ways to connect here at Matthias, and that slide will be up after the service if you're interested. I want to encourage uh, those of you who are college-age students that Deviate is coming up soon. It's our college-age conference at the Millennium downtown St. Louis. All the info is back there in the back corner. Also, something very uh, important for us, not just responding in worship and song and communion, but also in responding in worship of, of giving, is we have a little box in the back, which is where we house our, uh, our tithes and our offerings. It's called the Joy Box, and it's for our uh, regular attenders and members. I pray this tonight. I pray that for those of you that are in Christ, that you leave here trembling at the thought of his greatness at the picture of his character in awe of his love. And I pray that for those of you that came in here not in Christ, not believing, not in relationship, that you would keep the conversation going. There are many leaders, including myself, that would love to chat with you to tell you what God has done in our life. So may you go, church, celebrating, worshiping, and following the God of all grace. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See you next week, church.